0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: We have been getting better every decade uh, in terms of reducing poverty, the numbers of murders, rapes, airplane crashes, any indicator you want. The world has been getting better. We get compassion fatigue because the news only actually brings to us the, the, the terrible things. So we lose perspective and we think nothing is changing. I am not making a difference. My donation didn't make a difference and we give up perspective
2: nourishes hope. We have entered into
1: an amusing ourselves-to-death moment in history. It doesn't make sense to me.
0: If there is God, God's supposed to be free.
1: I was 100% sure that I was sacrificing on the altar of truth my only chance for happiness in this world. Miracles don't necessarily change anybody's mind. It just gets their attention. And so I had to run with my child on my back, the ESA
0: army coming behind us.
1: I said, gee, Uncle George, this is luxurious for a communist. (laughs) Sonny said, nothing's too good for the worker. Nothing.
0: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart.
2: And I'm Natasha Moore. And today we welcome back to the podcast, he's joined us a few times before, our colleague and the man described as Australia's favourite social justice activist, Tim Costello. Welcome, Tim.
1: Lovely to see both of you, colleagues. <laughs> Thank you, Tim.
0: Well, you and Natasha have both recently published these little books. They're really more like extended essays. The first two in the series of books from CPX is called Reconsidering. Now We did a Life and Faith episode last term on Natasha's book, The Pleasures of Pessimism, so we thought it was only fair to get you on, Tim. So it's your turn today.
2: Yep, your book is called The Cost of Compassion. We're kind of running with the alliteration here. (laughs) Um, It's a very rich little book, uh, conversational, but lots packed in there, um, and we won't be able to cover all of it in this chat. But really we wanted to ask you three big questions. I'm going to tell you what they are up front. The first one is going to be why is compassion complicated? Uh, Secondly, what about the problem of compassion fatigue uh, and then also, who is compassion for? How does that sound?
1: That sounds great, Natasha. I hope I pass your examination.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we have these hoops for you to jump through, as always.
0: So Let's see how we go. So, Tim, there's a sense in which compassion seems straightforward to people. Everyone wants to believe they're compassionate. We all do, whatever side of whatever political argument people are on. Everyone claims to be acting out of compassion. So I want to ask. If nobody has a bad word to say about compassion, why aren't we better at it? Why is it so complicated?
1: Yeah, well, in writing this little book, I was scratching my head about that, how you won't find anyone who uh, actually says humans uh, shouldn't be compassionate. Uh, And in some ways, that's a great tribute to uh, what I would call the image of God in humans, if God is compassionate and we are made in that God's image it stands to reason that all humans uh, valorise compassion and say it's so important. It then gets messy because we soon discover that we have different uh, objects of compassion, priorities for compassion. Uh, It gets even messier when we try and add them up into a political uh, uh, stand uh, about who is compassionate or more compassionate um it 's fascinating to me that uh, whether you 're on the right or left or in between, you will uh, validate your political stand by appealing to compassion. so it is the universal <laughs> benchmark uh, and yet we still divide and uh, often divide quite bitterly so if we uh, take the recent federal budget, despite uh, an eye watering level of debt. Uh, trillion dollars of debt, I think most Australians said it's compassionate to borrow that much, uh, to give tax returns, to create jobs. We know so many uh, businesses, life businesses in many cases, have been shuttered and maybe shattered. That was compassionate. Equally, some of us would say it was wonderful to see, in my case, uh, an increase in, A, $300 million for people who are different, compassionate, those overseas. Uh, But some criticism, and I share it, no spending on social housing. Uh, Why do we have homelessness? Because we don't spend on social housing. That wasn't compassionate. So suddenly we're all appealing to compassion, but we're making different political judgments.
2: So, I mean, part of it then is that there are so many competing demands on our compassion. Um, But is it also that, you know, as humans, you talk about how natural compassion and empathy are, but we have a lot of other natural responses as humans um, to other people. Uh, So as part of problem or the challenge that compassion sort of has to compete with some other less noble impulses?
1: Yeah, look, I would say that uh, the plausibility structures say, yes, compassion is very important, but it's back in the queue. <laughs> uh, we, we would uh, say freedom is perhaps more important and freedom uh, translated into, I worked hard. Uh, all taxation is theft. How dare they take it from me? (laughs) I've lost my freedom. Uh, That seems to be ahead of the queue. Uh, Certainly, um, the sense of order that uh, uh, chaos in society is uh, devastating. Therefore, defence spending, police spending, uh, court law enforcement uh, has to be fundamental. And then in front of the compassion often is flowing out of that. We want the infrastructure to go about our lives. So compassion sometimes becomes the crumbs from the table after we've met the other needs that are more natural or higher. And
2: that's kind of a, like, that's on a social level, but on a personal level we struggle with this as well, right? You used the example in the book of a particular Seinfeld episode (laughs) that brought this home to you.
1: Yeah, so uh, Seinfeld... um, I I think, still stands the test of time, at least, with this uh, baby boomer. Uh, There uh, is an example of great compassion. So uh, Elaine and Jerry and George decide that they're going to do something compassionate because they're good people. And to be good means to be compassionate. Jerry um, ends up volunteering for a person who's shut in but actually gets a little sidetracked with self-interest, because uh, he's going to collect these rare records that this man's going to throw out. So you start getting mixed motives. Uh, George only lasts a day volunteering, meeting uh, an elderly person, because this elderly person is uh, very reconciled to his own death. And George is terrified of death and ends up in the most extraordinary rational argument with this person and gives up.
2: How can you be grateful when you're so close to the end? When you know that any second, poof, bam oh, it could all be over? I mean, you're not stupid. You can read the handwriting on the wall. It's a matter of simple arithmetic, for God's sake. I guess I just don't care. What are you talking about? How can you sit there and look me in the eye and tell me that you're not worried? Don't you have any sense? Don't you have a brain? Are you so completely senile? You don't even know what
1: you're talking about anymore? Wait, wait, wait a second. Where are you going? Life's too short to waste on you. And uh, when they say, after a day, you've given up, George, he says, giving up only anything my family's good at. We're champions at giving up. <laughs> uh, Elaine uh, goes to visit a shut-in woman who suffers a, a, a horrible goiter, uh, which is almost like a second head, so, uh, appalling she. We only see the back of this woman's head <laughs> and you can see the look of horror on Elaine's face and she's just wanting to get out of there. She's so appalled. And the woman uh, has a picture of her as a young woman and she's quite beautiful. Elaine stumbles out a question and diso- discovers this woman was once Mahatma Gandhi's lover. Suddenly Elaine <laughs> is looking past the goiter, coming back and visiting, really engaged, and her channels of compassion are open. Uh, now, I think all of us resonate with that because it's all of us in those reactions.
2: We stumble at compassion.
1: We, we uh, valorise it and say it's the most important thing and we better do it, and then we stumble. Exactly.
0: So, Tim, maybe there is a question here as well about whether compassion is so universally applauded after all. The atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche famously called Christian compassion. Remember, he said that compassion was something Christianity had foisted on us. He called it a weapon in the hands of the weak. I wonder if in this increasingly volatile political climate, with a bit of a return to strongman politics, whether we can count on compassion to seem attractive to most people. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, look, I think Frederick Nietzsche was the most... Uh, consistent and ruthless voice not just attacking Christianity but the notion that if God is dead as was largely true in Europe of his time you cannot bank the morals that comes from God being alive and he pushed ruthlessly the inconsistency of what we today might call secularists or uh, atheists saying uh, you would you should join me. Uh, Christianity that pities the poor, prioritizes the meek and the poor, is a slave morality. Uh, there, there is no room for compassion for them because those who've done the most excellent things in the world are the wicked and the strong, and excellence should be valorized, not the meek, not the poor. So. Uh, Uh, I uh, haven't heard today secularists actually valorizing uh, Nietzsche's uh, wicked and strong. They still borrow uh, against Nietzsche uh, what I would say are quite profoundly Christian values. And I call it the great reversal in my little booklet, The Cost of Compassion, the reversal where not the strong and the great are put on a pedestal, but the weak and the poor. So... uh, I think you're right. I think authoritarian populist leaders, often ethno-authoritarian populist leaders, are saying compassion ends with us, and uh, it doesn't include even those of us who might be the wrong caste, the wrong colour, the wrong gender, the wrong sexuality. I think we are seeing that.
0: So is the great reversal still with this, even though people might not be as sort of sold up to institutional religion but is there a sort of a way in which that remains attractive I mean, it's certainly counterintuitive
1: yes it still is uh i there there are very few authoritarian leaders that uh speak in frederick nietzsche's idiom (laughs) as as inexorably relentless as he was i think nietzsche was actually spot on uh so um, that great reversal is still with us. It still is the imprint of how we largely talk. But when you hear language that essentially scapegoats others, uh, we've heard with uh, Donald Trump, it's Muslims, it's blacks. He won't, uh, won't uh, uh, criticise white supremacists. We saw that in the debate. You see, it's being eroded. This great reversal, which was so powerful, is actually starting to look like it's built on sand, not on stone, the stone of what Jesus taught.
2: Simon and I are talking to Tim Costello about his new mini book, The Cost of Compassion. Tim, I want to ask you about compassion fatigue. Um, I imagine this must have been a problem that you had to think about, particularly during the years that you spent um, as head of World Vision Australia. You know, dealing with disaster after disaster and so much suffering um, in some of the world's most desperate places. Uh, is compassion fatigue something that you have experienced yourself?
1: Yes, it is, um, and it comes from a, a sense of being overwhelmed, a, a loss of your own agency. Uh, when you uh, show compassion, you often idealise it in your own mind saying, I can change this situation, I can bring hope, I can bring comfort. And there are certain situations where you realise it is so overwhelming. You are rather impotent. And there's almost a resentment. Why did I even bother? And they don't even deserve me, <laughs> Um and that compassion fatigue, I think, is really dangerous because it starts to deny your own humanity in the the spark of god.
0: is there a what's the antidote to that? What have you found to be helpful?
1: Um, acknowledging the reality of those feelings, uh, I sometimes am giving a speech in a happy situation unrelated to any World Vision work or humanitarian disaster I've visited. And without warning, I'll find myself in tears. And the listeners will go, that's odd. What's he crying about? And I'm crying because I've seen the image of um, a woman in Sudan who got raped. And I talk about my first uh, disaster in Sudan, Darfur, in this booklet, The Cost of Compassion. Uh, And I realise that... Uh, I am feeling a, a tangle of emotions. Guilt, did I do enough? Impotence, I left, she had to stay. Uh, trauma, I think the tears, you build around your uh, emotions a wall, going what you've seen others haven't seen and therefore you can't be angry at them that they don't understand, so you build a wall. But you discover that the walls leak. they hemorrhage Mm -hmm. and I think um acknowledging that reality is the first step to dealing with compassion fatigue secondly acknowledging that you're not the messiah (laughs) you're you're limited and you can only do what you can do and far worse to give up and be resentful than to in a limited way still go on caring uh that, those steps are really important to overcoming compassion fatigue.
2: And I mean, you're talking about experiencing this um, in a position where, you know, if, if anyone can do anything about it, it's kind of you're at the head of this organisation that is doing something. Um, whereas for most of us, you know, with our daily news intake, we have all this information about what people are suffering all over the world. and. You know, there is the, the limits to what we can do are so um, tight. Uh, what advice do you have for people about kind of news intake and, you know, like if, is is that a cause of compassion fatigue? What can we do about it? Should we take in less of it or do we need to expand our compassion somehow to encompass everything?
1: Uh, no, I, I think... Um we need to get perspective, The perspective. And there's a wonderful book called Factfulness, which shows that we have been getting better every decade uh, in terms of reducing poverty, the numbers of murders, rapes, airplane crashes, any indicator you want. The world has been getting better. We get compassion fatigue because the news only actually brings to us the, the, the terrible things. So we lose perspective. And we think nothing is changing. I am not making a difference. My donation didn't make a difference and we give up. Perspective nourishes hope and nourishes optimism that is based on the fact that things are getting better and the support uh, that is given does make a difference. Um, That's why I talk about in this little booklet uh, uh, all of our dilemmas of walking past a homeless person on the street. And we all know that if we throw them some money, it might go on alcohol or drugs. Uh, If we stop and just talk to them, we might lose too much time because once you're drawn into a person's story, it's a bit rude to suddenly cut it and say, I've got to be at the office. We are conflicted, all of us, by this. And I don't resolve that uh, tension. I say you live with that because far better that you actually engage and let that person know that they're not invisible uh, and explain if you've got to move on why you have to do it then simply harden your heart and pretend they're not even there not saying you can stop with everyone but that's living with the the messiness of life and I think that's profoundly important for compassion perspective and engagement what we need.
2: Tim let's talk about I'm going to phrase it this way, the question of um, who compassion is for. Uh, I was watching this old interview with Mother Teresa. It's from um, 1993, and she talks to the BBC. It's like the first TV interview that she's given in a decade. Um, And she's talking about the work that her sisters, the missionaries of charity, are doing around the world. And she says this really interesting thing. Um, She's not super easy to understand, but I'll let her say it.
1: Yeah, and what is very beautiful that many people thank me for giving them opportunity to do works of love. It has helped so many people, they would have never had the chance to do anything for the poor. And now through us, they are getting involved in the work so much.
2: So what she's saying is like, here's what's beautiful, that this work has helped so many people who have never had the chance to do anything for the poor. Um, You know, not just that it's helped people who are poor, which is maybe what we'd expect her to say, but it's helped the people who volunteer in the work. Um, And I guess our assumption, though we might not put it quite this crudely, is that compassion is something that rich people show poor people or lucky people get to show unlucky people and feel good about themselves as a result. Um, How do you think that understanding of compassion, of kind of who it's for, is Wrong or inadequate, maybe.
1: No, I think she's spot on. I think um, the great learning from me, for me, uh, was this actually is about my humanity as much the as the person I'm in inverted commas helping uh, and overcoming in myself the need to be needed, the need to be a rescuer, and realizing this is actually an opportunity for me to be a vehicle, as she puts it, of love, is where true happiness lies. I don't think this is a mystery to most people. It, it takes barely a nanosecond in conversation it when you ask people what really gave them joy for them to say something like Mother Teresa just said. They will say, actually, uh, when I was able to express that love do that act of kindness. The sense of integrity, exhilaration and joy was just a hundredfold. Uh, it's far more blessed to give than to receive and we get the blessing. Um, that is, I think, spot on what Mother Teresa said.
2: What does that mean for people who are not in a position to, who, who are in kind of extreme poverty or find that they don't have as much of an opportunity to be generous. What does that mean for them?
1: Yeah. You know, the, the um, misunderstanding that we often have about uh, uh, poverty and wealth is that people in extreme poverty are only recipients. Uh, I had that when I began working at World Vision. Well, I didn't really have it. I'd worked as a Baptist minister in St Kilda and I discovered in an Aboriginal woman called Eva, who was the mother Teresa of the streets of St Kilda, her giving away uh, her last dollars, even though her pension cheque wouldn't come for a week and she didn't know how she was going to eat, Uh, and her joy. She had a Christian faith. She suffered from schizophrenia. Her uh, bodily odour was pretty on the nose. She was a classic street woman. And she was the model of Jesus. She was the Mother Teresa of St. Kilda Street. So I actually knew this in the joy in her life uh, and the utter poverty by Australian standards of her life, even before I joined World Vision. I discovered in poor communities without resources to uh, always give away, friendship, care, kindness. Uh, These things are what compassion are. And uh, uh, when you think about all we've got as humans, all we've got is time. And when you give time to a person, which is your friendship, you're giving something that's really deep. And it's an act of compassion to actually give that time. So poor people are as equally uh, able to give compassion and show it.
0: Tim, you mentioned you're a Baptist minister. You've been fighting for these battles for decades and you're still still going which is great um well just tell me a bit about how that christian story that you uh absorb uh informs your kind of efforts in this area what's it what's it saying to you about that
1: yeah i was a young church attender growing up in a christian family who discovered the uh, hebrew prophets And it was like an electric jolt through my body when I read Micah and Amos, let justice roll down like a mighty river. What does the Lord require of you to do justice? And suddenly the uh, connection with justice and compassion. And I say in this book, actually, the people who I admired most in my community growing up were people who showed compassion. They were the men who paid the bills and did the uh, renovations on a, uh, as we called them, deserted wife who had kids home back then uh, or someone who was a widow. Uh, And I remember as a young person just being so profoundly shaped and moved by that compassion, then connecting it to the Hebrew prophets, then actually understanding that Jesus and the Apostle Paul stood in the shoes of those prophets that they weren't some separate category, <laughs> uh, that this was what they were passionate about. Um, so in terms of Christian faith, it became very clear for me. Has it always worked out? I remember my kids saying to me, and you reminded me of this with that question, uh, Simon. Dad, is there any campaign you've backed that you've ever won? <laughs> uh, I realise my kids <laughs> saw me as a loser. <laughs> um, and uh, I have to try and remind them that it's faithfulness, not always success, that uh, that matters <laughs> with God. The
0: prophets often led pretty
1: <laughs> <up> difficult lives. <laughs> not a vocation you put out at
0: the uh, careers evening for the kids. <laughs>
1: no, I think that's very true. I don't think my parents ever thought that. But look, I went into law because I thought that was about justice. I discovered it was mainly about sending out bills and business. <laughs> and All <allowed>. uh, <laughs> So my journey actually has been pursuing justice as I understand it in my Christian faith.
0: Tim, I wonder what you think about this year, the pandemic and all the things that that's brought up and whether it's brought compassion into even sharper focus.
1: Yeah, I really do. I think um, this is the first crisis which is global. Every other crisis I went to. There was a normal beyond the earthquake, the war. This is everywhere. And that global crisis has actually uh, cemented two things. Firstly, we're utterly interdependent, biologically connected by a virus. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, Boris Johnson, Tom Hanks can get the virus as easily as any vulnerable poor person. Secondly, in who gets help, it's disproportionately unfair. And uh, I write uh, in this book about those who are in essential services around the world and have put their lives on the line by turning up so the rest of us could actually go on in this pandemic. Um, I I think the uh, solidarity and compassion shown by younger people who are least affected if they get the virus for people who are old like me or those who have pre-existing conditions is an act of solidarity and compassion. They have had their lives shut down when there's pretty low risk for them, for others. And uh, I wanna salute that. Uh, I think that has been extraordinary sacrifice and it comes from compassion, compassion and solidarity for others. So I think uh, that's that's the one silver lining that has uh, risen to the surface in this uh, crisis. Does
2: that make you hopeful about compassion? and its future?
1: Yeah, I, I actually am hopeful. I, I, I do believe that um, my generation, the worst saving, highest spending generation in human history, the government had to introduce super to make <laughs> baby boomers save. Uh, we have lived with extraordinary uh, indulgence since the end of the Second World War without a crisis. And this crisis, which I wouldn't wish on any of us, I think shapes young people to go, life is fragile and there are sacrifices to be made and there is compassion to be shown. I I actually think that gives me hope in terms of what young people have seen and how they largely have made choices.
0: Tim, you make the point in the book that compassion is all about suffering with someone else, sort of alongside them. And it's, in, this, in terms of especially the aid and charity work that we kind of get called to support, there's not much of that. But how do we kind of have truly compassionate lives?
1: Yeah, I think uh, most of us feel empathy. And uh, talking about Seinfeld, we laughed at the the, the shallowness of that empathy. Uh, compassion is more than empathy. It's actually suffering with. Compassion is also more than just empathy for people who are like us, who we share a culture with it's actually a common humanity and people who are different and to suffer with them is beyond uh, an expression of uh, you know what might be on our social media platforms it's uh, to give which might hurt us it is to find the time to if we if we're able to uh, sit with listen give time uh, I discovered in uh, development work that the most profound part of it isn't the hardware, the well, the school, the health clinic, it's the software. It's coming alongside, sitting with, listening, saying, I know your name and God knows your name. I'm looking into your eyes, I'm not walking away. That actually is much more profound than just the hardware of whatever aid comes in. And I think that's what suffering with means.
0: You've been listening to Life & Faith from CPX and Natasha and I have been speaking with Tim Costello about his new book, The Cost of Compassion. Now, you can get hold of this book along with Natasha's in the same series, The Pleasures of Pessimism. They're little books. They're both fun and thought-provoking and I really recommend them. They're only 7 dollars each and you can get them from Amazon, Coorong or Booktopia.
1: Next week... Well, nobody can survey all the world's religions, become equally expert in all of them, experience them all fully for oneself. You'd be 340 years old and have to have 25 PhDs. Like, it's just not possible. And anyone who tries to tell you that their religion is better than everybody else's religion in the world is overclaiming. Nobody can know that. No human being can know that. What we can do instead is to offer each other the best we have.